1: Came into sharp focus In the UK, police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom
0: itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth.
1: And freedom will be defended.
0: It's one of the most prestigious roles in UK frontline policing. The area car driver is an officer who for decades has provided that much-needed expertise at an emergency situation. Importantly, they've been the officer who's received arguably the best advanced driver training, enabling them to get from point A to point B in quick time under blues and twos, all whilst maintaining total control over their vehicle, ensuring the safety of their colleagues and the general public. My next guest on the Protect and Serve podcast spent nearly a decade as an area car driver in London, getting his hands on one of the most loved British police cars of the 70s and 80s, the Rover SD1. In this episode, former Metropolitan Police Sergeant Graham Wetton and I sit back, buckle up and explore his incredible career in the Met, from response policing to the Public Order Command and policing the tennis at Wimbledon. Graham has seen so much, and is often now seen on our TVs as an expert panellist on all operational policing matters. He is the author of the best-selling book, How to Be a Police Officer. We discuss all this and more on Protect and Serve. Welcome back to another episode of Protect and Serve. What an interesting few episodes. It's been already as series two drops. And as I always say, thank you ever so much to everybody that likes, shares and follows and interacts with me on the podcast. The questions that I get in of the guests that have come on are just incredible, really. People showing real interest in what our police do up and down the country here in the UK and more broadly right across the world. So thank you ever so much. Keep them firing in. We've got an incredible uh, upcoming series of episodes with some fantastic guests but um, before we get away with ourselves my next guest has spent an incredible period of his life in policing and particularly in public order policing which we're going to go into more detail he's appeared regularly as a professional commentator on television and radio stations providing his insights into some of the challenges of modern day policing in the public world and in public order and it is an absolute honour to welcome you to the podcast. Graham Wetton. welcome to the podcast. How are you this morning? I'm good, Holly. thanks. Listen, thanks ever so much for coming on to the podcast. As I say at the start of all of my episodes, we like to rewind the clock and go back to what is for you, 1977, walking through the gates of Hendon as a cadet. Tell me, first of all,
1: why policing? Do you know, i I'd no real... F- um idea where well, I didn't I knew I didn't want to stay at school, didn't want to go and back in the 70s not everybody went to university so I wasn't going to do the university route. um I can just remember I actually had my I was going to leave school and be a milkman, believe it or not. I was actually helping the local milkman so my ambition was to be a milkman which which horrified my mum at the time. Um, and the, the, the big T V show in the seventies was The Sweeney. And I quite—I I was interested in driving. My dad had been a lorry driver, show for all his career, so I had a, I had a, a thing towards like driving cars. So I quite liked the idea of, of having a, a nice fast car and to drive around London um, a bit quick, um, and just and just literally, and I, because I was I was working within like in, within the pub with the public, you know, the <laughs> bit delivering milk and taking money off old ladies for their milk bill every week. But I, I found I had a bit of an affinity talking to people or communicating with people and meeting yeah. people, so. Uh, I showed an interest in policing my mum then phoned up met police recruits and in those days you had a home visit topic now you know current topic did you get? I got a home visit from someone from the careers department they checked your house out checked your family out Um, did the interviews for the cadets had to do an entrance exam because at that time I didn't have my O-levels under my belt so you had to do the entrance exam to prove you're academically qualified as well. Um, and I got through. So 1977, joined um, the police cadets at it. So many of my friends have been in and out of jobs, trying up for a job for security as well. And I found the police cadets. It obviously gives you a flying start to the police force.
0: So did you get any sort of negative feedback from friends or greater family? You know, hang on a second, Graham's joining the what? You know, because often that's a difficult question in terms of well, Is he going to turn a blind eye if we do this? Or is how's he going to Are we going to get police? What does it mean for us as a family?
1: No, not really. They no, no really supportive, um, really supportive. I had a fairly close family. I mean, I, I spent the next 30 years hardly seeing anybody, so I almost had to reintroduce myself to my cousins and my extended family. My mum knew everybody, and I would turn up at family doings and go, well, Who's that? Well, that's your cousin, that's your cousin's child, and she knew everybody. And I'm like, I'm turning up like, like a stranger. I was often like Graham, the policeman, who was never at these weddings, christenings, and whatever parties um because i you know i was fully fully involved in shift work and policing it became policing almost became like my second family to a great extent um so um family were great i had no no negativity at all or, or concerns about it a few of my family have been on the wrong side of the track there i'll say it so um that that's been an interesting few conversations a couple of times when colleagues have come up to me and say do you know so-and-so and i'll go yeah why oh we stopped him today he dropped your name and it's like that's my cousin that's my mum, you know, on my mum's side. That's one of my cousins. It's like, do you know he's got form four? And I'm like, yeah, I know. So, but we never had, and that, you know, families are difficult. You you, you choose your friends, you can't choose your family. It's, yeah. you know, some parts of the family we saw, some parts we didn't. So what were the challenges at Hendon?
0: You know, you, you go through the cadet process and then you move into the, the, the mainstream police recruitment process mm. in terms of the training. We talk about it every week. The vocation mm. of policing is incredibly complex. Yeah. The officers of constable legislation policy and procedure how did you find the academic part of it as well as the
1: physical component the cadets prepared you really really well because you had a little bit of a uh, it was like being at a college or a university and it was very very it was quite physically demanding we did loads of physicalities uh, loads of physical stuff loads of physical training loads of running um, salt courses um, camping in North Wales rock climbing in Derbyshire so we did like lots of like physical type things but they also like, dropped in a, a bit of policing. And when you went out when you went out to a police station, you worked as a cadet with a team. So you had a bit of an understanding of what was going on. You didn't know a, a lot about the legislation or the powers and policies. And then when you got to Hendon, in, and I went in 79, very young, still you know very green, 18 and a half year old, um, stepping into that academic side of it and learning the legislation, but then also doing back then the role plays, the scenarios they got you to do, um, I found it okay. You just had to literally get your head down. And, and back in those days, you had to learn your powers word for word. You literally had to write I've still got them upstairs. I've got little white, white crib cards that you, you carry around with you everywhere. And you had to learn it literally word for word, the legislation, the Theft Act, you know, offensive weapons, assaults, etc. cetera. Um, and most, most cops of my generation can still recite... An assault is intentional application of force applied to the person of another, or the threat of such force by act or gesture, etc., etc. So most of most cops of my generation can still recite those powers and policies. Uh, and I've since I retired, I've taught recruits for about seven years, and I used to say to my anyone in my class, you really need to know these word for word, because you've got to be, even more so these days where people are filming and recording you all the time. You've got to be on point all the time with what you're saying and what you're explaining. More so in my day because people weren't recording me with what I said and did. I could, you know, I could get things slightly wrong on the street, um, but no, and it wasn't, it wouldn't appear on on the social media channel.
0: I'm going to digress here a minute because I think we have to, and you bring up the training, and I still remember. I, I'm an o four o five vintage in terms of when mm. I joined policing, and then twelve twelve years later, I, I stepped away and moved into the private sector and. When I graduated, we knew everything verbatim from, yeah. as you quite rightly point out, the definition of assault, yeah. the arrest caution, yeah. our powers to handcuff, our justification for use of firearm, because in Australia we are armed, everything we knew inside out. What I worry about these days, coming having moved back to London, moved back to the UK, and I watch, as an example, and as much as I find them to be, quite frankly, a pain in the ass, but they do exist, these auditors, that generally want to challenge the police, and generally younger police officers on their ability and knowledge and expertise of their own subject. And I find time and time again that the knowledge base that I would have had to be able to shut down these conversations, mm. they just don't exist. We don't seem to know enough of what we're doing. And, it's, and it worries me that we don't know that level of detail that probably you and I yeah. did to the extent that we did when we graduated. Would you agree with that to some
1: point? Does it worry you? Yeah, I think, I think the way, the way that, that police recruits are trained um, doesn't focus so much on the, the basics um, the key powers and policies that you need. Um, so learning your stuff, literally word for word, but knowing it that well that you can actually repeat it, recite it when someone's asking you or challenging you, you know, what power, what are you doing this for? Um, no one in policing knows there's so many acts and, and sections and le- pieces of legislation and policies and guidelines and etc. etc. Et there's no police officer across the country that knows, knows everything um, about what no. you need. I got asked the other day about something about uh, when... Um, when Rishi Sunak was fine for not wearing a seatbelt, I didn't interview about, you know, what what, what the legislation is about wearing seatbelts. I had to look it up. Most cops would have to look it up because you don't deal with that on a day-to-day basis. So you become specialised in, in the area of policing you're working in and you know that really well. If you then take you out of that and put you in a different role like roads policing, like traffic or something, or dealing with um, child abuse or something, or domestic abuse, then you have to learn the legislation that, that's, that's within that, that piece of policing. So... You know, sometimes I can see both sides. To expect young cops to know word for word exactly what powers they're using every single time, I think is a bit of a stretch. But they should know their basic powers. The basic powers to stop and search, their basic powers to detain, arrest someone and give a caution. This is all basic policing. And I think training's gone away, it's gone into and it needs a bit of understanding, equality, diversity, etc. But it's almost the focus is on the focus is on how we look. And the, op, the great phrase, the optics, etc., and, and this other one, the holistic approach to training. Teach them the basics first. Basic policing is about stopping people, speaking to people, preventing crime, detecting crime. Focus on those and teach them those in their first two years and then develop the other stuff on top of it.
0: You graduated uh, in 1980. That must have been an incredibly proud day for you and your family to watch you march out of Hendon with that warrant card, dressed up in your smart tunic mm-hmm. and your, your tall hat. Tell us about that day.
1: I can't remember much about it. I've got a I've got a picture of it because that they when they, oh, they video it all now. It's all video. You can buy the presentation. Yeah. There's loads of pictures. When I when I come out of Hendon, which was I think December 1979, was our passing out parade. Um, so I, I ended up having to do two two weeks of state security because I was an ex cadet. So I wasn't old enough to go back out on the street yet. Surprisingly stupid process, but anyway. Um, so it was freezing cold. We stood literally in front of the old pill statue at the old Hendon with the three tower blocks and the old classroom block. We literally marched on, stood on the roadway, got inspected and marched off again and that was it. And I think I've got one still picture and you can just about see me, in like the third row or something. So um, I can vaguely remember what happened but not much about it at all. Literally class of about, I don't know, 20 of us or so. So not even like a big class in in today's terms but... Yeah, it was, it was it was great, but I knew I didn't have to go back to Hendon because I was still there for two more weeks before I got out on Borough. And even then, when we got out in those days, you weren't allowed to go out on the streets until you were 19. So all the ex-cadets were basically like, you know, had to stay in the station for another two months. So I spent two months rattling around a police station, desperate to get out on the street and not being old enough. Tell us about tooting, you know, when was the <laughs> when was the
0: first sort of, what were the first challenges that you came across all the incidents more broadly that you realised that policing was going to offer you challenges in terms of both emotionally, physically demanding, dealing with incidents that maybe you didn't even have life experience in it and exposed to, like a domestic dispute between a married yeah. couple?
1: Um, steep learning curve. Um, as, a, as a young 18-year-old, you know, coming up to not a 19-year-old by the time I was, I, I was there, um, yeah, you're exposed to stuff you don't actually, even though you, and, and bear in mind, back then, It's different these days. But back then, if it wasn't on the news at 10 or news at 6, you didn't read about it in the paper, you didn't hear about things. So, you know, to to expose people to the sort of instance we were dealing with um, can be a a real steep learning curve. I started at Tooting. As I said, I wasn't old enough to go out on the street. So for the first couple of months, rattling around the station, doing, like, admin duties... um, and my, my, my governor at the time, the duty officer at the time, the inspector, took pity on me after a couple of months and said, look, on night duty, if you're really good and behave yourself, I'll let you go out on, like, the Friday or Saturday night. So my first arrest, my literally my first arrest was from the fray. Uh, and he put me out in one of the, the beat cars, one of the panda cars, um, one, of the, the, one of the female officers, um, and thinking I won't get in trouble with, bless her, with Claire, with, you won't get in trouble with Claire, So you just go around and report the crimes and etc etc. We literally drove straight into a big fight outside a, a house party. Um, wow. So I had three, three, three in for a fray and ended up at the Crown Court a couple of months later. So that then, uh, you know, that I thought, right, this is a job for me because it's, you know, it, you never know what's going to happen. Literally drive around the corner and it's all happening in front of you. So it's not even time to react to you your on way to a call. So you roughly, you're working out in your head what call you're going to, what you might have to do. That literally was right in front of us as we come around the corner. So, yeah, different things, are, you know, up, up, it was about, what, 22, 23. I think I had a spate of dealing with about four um, suicides by hanging. Um, one at Wandsworth Prison. Um, the other, the other three were um, in residential premises. Um, a couple were found by family, and it doesn't really prepare you. A cop death at what was St James's Hospital in Balham—it's not there anymore. And in those days, it just used to be me as a young PC had to go around and, and check the house where the baby had come from. And I can—I could, could drive you to the house. This, you know, today I could drive there now, and park outside. I can still remember pulling up outside on my own in my Panda car making sure I put my hat on to look professional, had a clipboard with me, knocked on the door. You can hear the crying inside the house. Um, and those things stay with you. They, you know, I'm 60-odd I'm years old now. I was like 21, 22 then. I can still remember driving to that scene. I can remember um, being called to a lady that, that, that killed herself. I mean, these are people listening to this. This is really dark. But she literally poured paraffin over herself and set fire to herself. I can drive you to that house now. That, that's in Tootin and Ballon. So these sort of... Instances- but how does,
0: how, how, how does a young constable process how did you process that emotionally in terms of these are incredibly traumatic scenes watching somebody commit suicide in such i don't know i say an aggressive and quite awful manner must be
1: hard to process in terms of you know this isn't normal it, it isn't and and, and I, I say it often it takes extraordinary people to deal with those sort of incidents and be able to then go home and answer the question you know I was going back to either the police section house or then I bought, house, bought the first house in '83. so you go back to your partner your wife your fiance whatever or, or back you know speak to your mum how did your day go and you you just glossed over it oh it was okay you dealt with this and that you don't let you go into the detail you get I got my strength and support from the people I was working with um and it's it's from going back and talking to them and them sort of like it was a They listen to you, but then almost there's there's a dark humour within police. And I don't say we make light, uh, light of these things or joke about them, but it's almost like, you know, I, I, as I said, I had a couple of uh, people that, that uh, committed suicide by hanging. I'd sort of walk into the, the canteen and say, well, oh, you're hanging around in here today, Donnelly, and like, people laugh at you. And it's like, but it's almost like that, that level people outside of policing, fire brigade, the paramedics, the ambulance service don't quite get this, but it's almost like it's okay. Not to be okay, and how you deal with things is different from person to person. If you you know, you might have to laugh about something as if this isn't normal, but I've got to deal with it, and you're professional at the time. But it's just it's having a release somewhere. The canteen, people talk about canteen culture. Canteen was a great place to sit down, and if if you're feeling a bit down, or just dealt with something as I've been dealing with, you come back in, and one of the one of the experienced older PCs is sitting there. Did you just go and deal with that? Yeah, I did, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, what happened? Tell me, you know, what happened about it? How did you get on with it? Have you dealt with it? Okay, happy what you've done? And you talk it through with them. And then they might give you a bit of stick about it, a little bit of a a, a joke or something, and you just move on to the next job. So there there was no counselling, no support, no wellbeing stuff going on. It was just, you got your strength and support from the people around you. And that's what I alluded to. They become like your family. They become people you go to, like you go to your mum or your dad or your older brother, for a bit, of, a bit of strength and support, the people I worked with became that for me. We talked about um, going to
0: the suicide, the hanging in the prison, which is an interesting one in itself because you're kind of going into, if I can describe it, the lion's den in terms of this is yeah. where the people that have been arrested are housed. You know, I remember going into Yatla Labour Prison in South Australia in, in, just outside Adelaide and being quite intimidated by this process of very large... Bulked up men who'd just been doing push ups for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and were quite fit. And then suddenly here we are touring around trying to understand if there was ever a problem, how we would navigate our way around the corridors. What you know, and if you're going there for a job like a suicide, you know, not only have you got to investigate it to make sure there's no suspicious Mm. circumstances, it's a crime scene, but you're also dealing with the individuals and families and you know, people that actually don't really like police. Yeah, I mean, that was, that
1: was, oh God, that was decades ago. That was back in about 83, um, 82, 83, something like that. Um, early 80s anyway. Um, went there on my own. Again, you, we weren't double crewed, I was single crewed. Um, I remember calling the gym wow. office up because they, they used to come out and have a look at it. He didn't want to come either. Um, but again, park your car in in the like the front of the prison. And like you said, open yeah. the gates up, it's all locked. And you go in and there's, there's like corridors and cages and gates and things. They took me into a little room and brought... Brought like the witness in, took me to the scene where they, and you have to examine everything, write it all down. It's all different now. It's it's a lot more, um, it's dealt with a lot more, with in more detail than than. than I'm, you know, I'm talking back in the day when literally I turned up, wrote a report, went to the coroner's officer, uh, and they were happy. There was, and again, the post mortem, no suspicious circumstances. But it's about you know preserving the rope, the knot, etc., making a note, speaking to people that that saw the person last. And you're right. It was a very hostile environment. And I'm there in full uniform. I wasn't. It wasn't like I'm not a detective or anything. I'm there in full uniform, walking through the prison. And the, the you're right. The looks, the stares you get. Uh, Would you like a cup of tea? No, I'm very fine, thank you. Thank you. I don't need anything at all. I didn't want to <laughs> yeah, eat tea, yeah. coffee. Uh, we'll get you drink. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm. I'm and someone again, one of the older PCs said to me, when you get in there, nothing. Don't have a. Don't have any tea yeah. or coffee or anything at all. Not even a chocolate biscuit. It takes you back to that scene in Blackadder, doesn't it? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> How'd you make oh, the coffee? God. Do you want the chocolate sprinkles on it? No, I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you. Cappuccino. No, I'm good. Um, but again, you, you laugh, oh, things dear. like that. I mean, that's a, that was a dreadful thing I was going to deal with. But again, people saying to you, a bit tongue in cheek. Remember, don't, don't accept it. I'm sure it would have been fine. I'm sure someone would have looked after me, but quite intimidating. But again, you've got a job to do. You've got your, you put your, your work head on, your professional head on. You go in, you know what you're looking for, you know what you're looking at, what you've got to make a note of and, and report. And you do what you need to be, needs to be done, and come away from it, um, and just just move on to the next job, and chat about it when Let, you get back.
0: Let's talk about um, Brixton in nineteen eighty one. Brixton is a fascinating place, you know, rich in culture, history. The borough of you know the Lambeth borough and Brixton Town Hall has always been a focal point for a number of mm. kind of public debates between police and the community, and it, you know it's so it's always been so critically important to work closely with the community in Lambeth in, in terms of trying to resolve issues but in 1981 there was obviously a bit of a flare-up and, yeah. and quite significant public disorder um personal memories for me i wasn't born in 1981 but my father was at hendon <laughs> was on for standby i know sorry <laughs> my father was on standby ready to deploy as i think a police recruit to brixton but never got the opportunity but um i think he's quite thankful for that but talk us through your first real kind of insight and exposure to significant public disorder, a real um, dislike for mm. police in terms of then trying to manage it and bring back the environment to business as usual and dealing with very hostile crowds. How was that for you?
1: That was it was a funny. It was a strange day from my perspective because it was a Saturday. My, my recollection it was a Saturday. Um, we were long weekend. We used to get one weekend off a month back in those days. So, you, you do like a, three, a four week rotor, but you only got one Friday, Saturday, Sunday off in that four week period. So, it was my weekend off. I'd arranged to meet my then girlfriend, um, and she was coming over to the section house with me. We were going to go out for something to eat. Um, and they had op- what was called Operation Swamp, where they were trying to trying to deal with um, street robberies and, and a rising crime in the local area. So, they done, and the tactic back in those days was just literally to swamp, uh, literally swamp the area with the uniformed cops and stop and search everybody. That caused resentment and confrontation. Uh, an incident took place outside, I think, of the Atlantic pub. Um, local rumour went the police officer, The police had actually injured somebody when they hadn't. It had been another incident, another, another person. But basically, um, it all escalated in the local area. I've walked into two Inception House at about... Four or five in the afternoon, five or something in the afternoon, to be met by the sectional sergeant with a clipboard. And I must have done my public order train at that point, which, which, when I look at the time now, I must have done it like a day early or so earlier, because we didn't tend to, when we started public order training, we obviously then sent probationers back then. But as, as time developed, we then didn't send probationers, now we're doing it again. So I'd obviously been public order train, uh, and it was in the early very early days then, when we first used the place in Feltham, so not down at Hounslow, but in Feltham. So I'd obviously been public order trained. In those days, we had no public order kit. Uh, the only shields we had were long shields. And we had this fancy D-bus technique to get off a, along the big green coaches with the shields in the in the luggage compartment underneath. I remember walking into the section house, the sergeant saying to me, um, oh, Graham, you're public order trained. And I had a girlfriend with me, standing next to me. You're public order trained. Need you, you're back, you're on duty now. Go and get your kit. Get in the canteen. You're going off to Brixton. So I like, waved to her. Oh, like, I'll ring you when I can. I've got no idea when I'm going to finish. So off she went. Um, got, got, got in a green coach. Up to Brixton, we pulled up um, just off um, Acre Lane, Cold Harbour, um, just off Routon Road, just literally around the corner from Routon Road, pulled over, um, already getting some missiles towards us as we debus from the coach. And we've literally got our big beat duty helmets. So we didn't even have NATO helmets, big beat duty helmets, tunics with a belt, tie, shirt. You dressed for the occasion. Oh, yeah. And then the long shield was thrown <laughs> under the coach at you. So, you had to catch it, form up, and there were five man shield units then. So, it's really in the early days of public order um, policing. So, you had a five man shield unit. And we went up to the junction and turned right into Ralton Road, where we were then confronted with bricks, bottles, and for the first time on the mainland, petrol <laughs> bombs. seen enough damage to convince me that a serious breakdown of law and order occurred. I've also seen enough to convince me that the police have, in their very difficult task, and I want to say this again, again, and again, deserve the support of every law-abiding citizen in this country. And I can remember there was an ITV, it was like news, ITV camera crew were, were running around in road. And I remember this cameraman comes along, and I was a left-hand shield. So I was a left-hand shield, centre shield, and right-hand shield. So I was on the left-hand side, um, just near the curb line, and this camera crew come up alongside me, and he's standing next to me, like like filming what's coming towards, and I said, mate, I wouldn't stand there. I really wouldn't stand, and his petrol, and the next minute's petrol bomb literally landed between me and him, big whoosh, and I last saw them disappearing, almost with their rear ends on fire, back down. I never saw them again. The carrot, take it in. And we were there till about four or five in the morning, uh, and the disorder went literally through the night. And we were we were um, like making shield advances, but literally five of us in a long shield unit. So real early days. We we've, we've evolved and developed tactics since then, but we only had long shields and normal uniforms on. So it was um, it was at the time you just get in the you get as I said work head professional head training kicks in you do what needs to be done, you're listening to the sergeants and inspectors, you're reacting to the words of command. It's not until you get back on the coach and drive back and by that time you're exhausted. You start thinking about what you've just been through and you can almost see, um, I dare I'll say it, hate, but that, that, that people really wanted to do you some harm, really wanted to do you uh, personal harm. So it was it was like looking after each other and just working as a unit.
0: You know, we'd- we laugh about it now and there are funny stories that come out of these incidents but they were very serious they they have defined the challenges I believe that exist within those boroughs yeah. in terms of managing the, the the importance of community policing and understanding what the challenges are for the community yeah. and what the challenges are for the police but during that period there did you see colleagues getting hurt and being yeah. carried off yeah. in ambulances and and then how do you how do you not how do you maintain the professionalism that you did in terms of not taking that personally or is it that or you do in terms of right? We've got to get them back now. Is there? Do those start to creep in? Is there a challenge there to to Not, maintain that professionalism? I don't. I don't.
1: Some, some of my colleagues will always say, "Yeah, it comes a bit of them and us." Um, I didn't. I always It was almost like you're trying to protect your colleagues and save your colleagues. So it wasn't a question of like get them before they get us. It was. It was. It was almost trying to. And it sounds cheesy, but restore restore order, um, clear people off the street, uh, make it safe again. The the the, the, the the Daft thing is really, when you look at it, you know, I was there on a Saturday with a shield, having petrol bombs and bricks thrown at me. On the Monday morning, we were, I mean, we spent the next three months on aid to Brixton. So we'd spend every day driving up to what is now the Battersea Power Station site, but we'd be, in, we'd be on standby there. And I spent the next couple, of, couple of months or so, literally walking on like a, a small beat around Electric Avenue and Brixton. So we had like a, a four roads. That me and a colleague would walk round. Going in the shops, cups of tea, biscuits, chatting to the locals, and it was almost like we were a nice police, and we weren't these these people that turned up with shields on, you know, three days before. And I was, I, was, and I used to think to myself, that was me. I, I was the person behind the shield, and now you're like giving me a giving me a cup of tea and a biscuit and telling me it's great to see me there. So it was, it was almost like um, sections of the public or communities can almost differentiate between what they think are the good cops and the the not so nice cops. And you're standing there thinking, but it, it's me in the same uniform. It's the same, I'm the same person. I've just done a different. I'm just doing a different role, and I think that that we still get it these days. Policing is seen as a broad brush, so everybody in policing is seen as the same. You know, from the good and the bad, mostly the bad, the negative. That that negative bad brush is applied to everybody in policing when that happens.
0: And again, I digress. But there's one thing I find a little bit frustrating, and and I don't know why it is. And I think it's probably because we have enforced the law, and we're kind of that. We're held to such a higher level of account, I think, than other public services. You know, you look back in history at issues in different publics. So let's take, let's just take, for instance, Dr Harold Shipman. Mm. The guy allegedly has killed more than 300 people. Yeah. Horrific individual. But none of us stopped going to see doctors. None of us blanketed every doctor in the countryside as being, hello, where's the next one? But policing has this kind of rare technique of being everybody being blanketed with the same brush. And there's you know, so much going on in the media, sadly, at the moment, tragically, where... Policing is really at a crossroads in terms of how it kind of recovers in terms of the um, ethical, its ethics, its integrity, and, and and what it stands for, and the people within its organisation, more importantly. So there are some real challenges, but I wonder why that doesn't happen. But I just, just I suppose, I come to the conclusion it's because we're just that final line of defence in uh, public wait, order.
1: Well, I've always been, I've always had like a, a glass half full rather than half empty, so more like a positive side than a negative, and I think it's it's. It's partly it's a positive thing because people clearly see policing as being being held at a higher level, higher respect, higher authority, etc. So when, when actually when those the people that you it's almost like people say never meet your idols because they're never quite never quite what you what you think or perceive them to be when you meet people that you've you've like you know held on a pedestal for a while. So I think when when police officers um, commit as we've seen serious offences. It's almost like that reflects on, I used to say this to my recruits, if you do, you know, however you deal with people, they'll remember that forever because, and if you, if you don't deal with them properly, I and mean, you deal with them badly or rudely, people tend to remember the, the bad things in life for, across the board. But it's even more so within policing because it is, it is a unique position in, in society. Um, it is, for many people, still held with, with some esteem. That's been impacted lately. But it because when you see them then transgress or commit offences, it actually damages your trust and confidence in that in that whole profession, which is slightly. I mean, doctors are are partly there, but not quite. For me, anyway, they don't seem to be at the same level. And if I think if you look at, I saw some a report the other day. The stats are there's been more serious offences committed by by GPs than are by police officers. So, but that doesn't it doesn't impact on that profession. It seems or other similar like nursing as well. It doesn't. Those professions don't seem to have the same, and um, I think it's down to like the the positions of power and authority that police officers have. Uh, that, that means they are that, that view is taken more broadly. It's a fascinating
0: topic. It's a podcast episode in <laughs> itself, but we must crack on with your incredible career. Let's talk about 1985. You move into Wimbledon, and you know you say you joined with that kind of desire to reflect the Sweeney drive fast cars you did become a class one area car driver you know the classic dare I say it stereotypical PC Tony stamp from the bill that iconic figure um, who I had the honour of interviewing a couple of episodes ago but tell us about this step into driving and because and, there's a lot of prestige behind the area car driver on a
1: borough there was I'd like to think there still is but yeah when I did it there was and I've actually had the pleasure yeah. of having Mr Stamp in the back of my area car on a couple of shifts oh so, amazing yeah. Um, so, their studios was on my old ground, it was on Mitcham, So we used to yeah, take yeah, out yeah. the writers, the producers, um, and occasionally the actors. And I remember my governor said to me, Can um, there's an actor from The Bill who Wants to come out. And bear in mind Tony's character was the Eric car driver. So yeah. I think if you, you you've done the podcast now, but I think if you ask Tony, he would say he, he, he like I think he put some of his acting characteristics based on Eric car drivers he met. I'm not pu- I'm not purporting to be that individual. No, one, I'm not purporting that individual because he went out with a couple of people, but yeah, a couple of tours of duty with Tony literally sitting in the back of the car, just an observer, just to see and chatting to us, and just listening to how we talked. The ca- I actually thought I watched the bill a couple of times, um, and in fact, I was in it. I had a camera crew in the back of my car. So there's an episode called "The Chase," which is me driving. that's cutting with scenes of the actor driving before he has a collision, and I didn't have the collision. I hasten to add. Um, but yeah, the car was was an interesting one. I, I, yeah, I wanted to drive fast cars. Wanted my class one. Got that in '85. Um, and then drove it for about another eight eight years until I got a bit bored with it, really. Um, just just wanted a different career change. But well, I talk, that.
0: Us, talk us through the cars that you're driving, because there'd be people that are fascinated oh. by the vehicles that you've been driving. So back in 85, what was the uh,
1: what was the the choice of vehicle for the Met? Rover SD1. So my driving course is predominantly in a rover SD one. We had the old um, P6 versions, the old three and a half litre ones were up in the skip pan. So we had a skip pan back then, so we did a skip pan um, day as well. Um, the Rover ST1 and, and Leyland, in their infinite wisdom, had flipped the wipers and indicators in the in the newer model. So the, the B-reg ones, which were the newer ones, had the, the wipers on the right or whatever, and the older ones, the Y-regs, had them on the left. So you jump it, and my final drive, I jump from one old one into a new one. So the, fir- the first thing I did was put the wipers on instead of indicate, which cost me a couple of points from the yeah, chief instructor. He said, I'll give you one oh. free wipe of the, of the uh, one free wipe of the screen <laughs> instead of the indicator. So I literally said, right, when you're ready. And I went to pull out and put the wipers on. He went, "But well, you've done that one already. <laughs> so I, was, I was then already. That was my freebie done out the window. Um, and you even had left the car park. No, it was literally, I was just pulling out. We were just going to do the, the bandit chase. So I was just literally it out the lay The oh. wipers went on. And I went, um one of the, one of my instructors is sitting in the back of the car I, I looked in the rearview mirror, and he's just going like I won't say it, but he, he called me a rude word. He mouthed the rude yeah. word like could word up what he used. It Begins with W, yeah. bong. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like <laughs> And I rolled my eyes. He was like Okay, so our two car, Mark, Convoy, Plus and Twos exercise on car two. So gotta look beyond the lead vehicle. And also I'm duty bound to extend my brain to try post maps and we go
0: through hazards
1: and one we're going off at the next junction mirrors my gap initially is behind silver i'm just to come off the noise momentarily so i don't invoke a reaction from silver happy with my gap continue into the slip lane and now mirrors and brakes are back on the noise uh, yeah i was pleased i've got to come out with a glass one so i was uh, thrilled with that um I had a decent drive and I had loads of loads of vehicle pursu- people tend to ask about the vehicle pursuits and i've had dozens and dozens of vehicle pursuits with people tell you us know, about you know, one of re- the
0: most memorable ones
1: um, my, my very last actually my very last day driving the area car before I moved into the ops office at Wimbledon was an early turn and not much happened early turn and it was a car that was chased and lost at about 100 mile an hour on the A3 in south west London um, chased and lost and it, one of the, and you probably had it you get like the index gets put over you know, all cars please look out for whatever it was bloody bloody blah, blah full Granada and the index and we're driving through at the time and I had two people in the back of the car I was going to give two people a lift from Mitcham to Wimbledon so I had something to do there so we drive out about half past ten, about, you know, it was about 20 minutes ago. This car was last seen, seen the last A3 towards south-west London. And we're driving in towards um, Maldon town centre and it goes past one And it's it's like, you're like, yeah, yeah, dude, you, uh, you, you know, this is radio, but you—you—it's like that's like once every I don't know four years or something. Actually, a car that circulates it goes past you. It doesn't happen no. like it is in the telly. I've only—I've had one. So we, we, there you go, exactly. So I spun round, flash, 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 straight into the curb. Which again, I'm like, well, oh, that's a bit suspicious. It's failed to stop already. Now it's straight in as soon as I flashed it. So the two in the back, I went stay in the back, and my operator, was a bit switched on, I went, and I never got out of the car until I actually secured secured the driver. So I went. Take t- take your time. So he looked at me. I went, Don't feel right. He, and as he got out of the car and walked, literally took two paces off he went, whoosh. So he jumped back in, off we, we went. Literally wasn't that long, it was about, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes um, in and around Mitcham and Malden um, 80, 90 miles an hour. Um, and he eventually crashed it, stacked it up by Mitcham Golf Course. So they're both arrested, both professional shoplifters. We've done about a grand, a thousand pounds worth of shoplifting a day. Um, but yeah, have, had a few, had a few. I'd, 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 I was suspended after one pursuit where um, the bloke crashed the car and was pretending to be unconscious. So the garage sergeant suspended me on the spot because he thought he was seriously injured. And about four hours later, he tried to escape from hospital. So my chief superintendent reinstated me about 10 minutes later. So if he's that willing to <laughs> escape from hospital, Graham, he can't be that badly injured. So you can have your driving ticket back. So yeah, some interesting. Interesting pursuits. I could write a whole book on that one. Just vehicle pursuits.
0: <laughs> but it is, it is interesting point in terms of that these tickets that you were given could quite easily be taken away from you. They weren't yeah. a gimme, were they? They were. They were no, 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 very no, no. prestigious in terms of holding on to them, looking after them, and driving. Yeah. You know, safely, smoothly, quickly, yeah. and efficiently. You know, like it's. And I think if, you know, I think the UK and, and the UK driving training that goes on within the Met is certainly looked upon globally as a, as a standard, which is up there with the best of them. This place has won a reputation that's spread right around the world. Although its main job is to look after the training of London's policemen, in its time it's trained policemen from 60 or 70 countries, from as far afield as Aden, Australia, even Iceland. Now at the moment there are two Japanese policemen here, uh, so at least we can teach the Japanese something. They are inspectors of Kahara, Assistant Inspector Nagao, the instructor is Sergeant Turner. Let me speak to you
1: first, Sergeant Turner. Do you teach exactly the same course to foreign students as you do to London's drivers? Yes, we do. The system that we teach is exactly the same for uh, whatever students we've got. So so you believe that the things we need to know about driving in London have validity, if you like, around the world, do you? Yes, indeed they do. The dangers that that exist on our roads exist on roads uh, all over the world. It used to, I can remember being at the driving school and even being up at Hendon and seeing like literally people from literally across the globe, Japan, Russia, uh, France, it's a, you name the country, they'd sent people to the Met driving school um, to do a driving course. So it was, it was, yeah, it was a place to be uh, and the, the training was excellent. The training was first class. I, my course was six weeks. Um, I think it's changed slightly now. It's changed a lot now. But my course was six weeks long, literally six weeks up at Hendon, day in, day out, just driving around the countryside and, and practising. Like you said, safe, progressive driving, commentary all the time. So you're talking your way through the drive. Um, and I still use it to this day. I still use my, you know, the, the driver training I had, um, I still use to this day. And the system of car control you can recite. System of car control is a feature or a drill, each feature of which is, et etc. et cetera. Et cetera. So, I
0: was going to say, you must be a nightmare to go to the shops with on a commentary call. <laughs>
1: my, my wife hates driving with me in the car. That's a little secret for you and anybody listening. She hates sitting in the car with me and driving because I'm. I'm, She can feel me. I still do some driving assessing for a a private car club, but she hates sitting with me and driving because I'm. I'm like, while we're in lane three on the motorway, why aren't we (laughs) moved over? Oh, Oh, doesn't go well, Ollie, ever.
0: Right, let's talk about the move into the more public order work, 1993, Team 5, TSG. For our viewers out there, we, you know, we had the honour recently of talking to one of your old governors, um, Commander Bob Broadhurst, I think yeah. recognised as being probably certainly one of the greatest leaders the Mets had in the last decade in terms of public order. Uh, and it was a fascinating chat with him. But tell us about TSG and your move into that environment. What spurred you on to
1: get on the front line of public order work? Um, I've, I've failed an application to go into surveillance, is the advice of John's truth. <laughs> I'd applied to go into surveillance, and bear in mind I'm an area car yeah. driver in uniform, never been in, then I'd done bits and pieces in plain clothes, but I hadn't really, and it's not like seeing on the telly you follow people by looking around corners and talking into a, a plastic bag or something. So um, I'd had no real experience of surveillance. A couple of my mates who were, who were working there I'd, I'd, You know, take me for a literally a walk around the block, give me some hints and tips. But I got down to like the final 20, and there was about 400 applied for this. For the first day up at Hendon was like a big auditorium. And we had to do like a, it was like the old, there used to be a show called like the Krypton Factor, where they'd show you like a clip, a film, and then and ask you questions. You know, what colour was the red, what colour was the door? Um, what, 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 did, what, what did the bloke have on his, his feet? So you'd have to like, so I got through all that business, got to the last 20, and the last 20 had to do like a little walk in and around central London and follow and like find someone and follow somebody. And I dipped on that. And the feedback was, if you want to come into surveillance, you need to go and do, you know, almost. And the description to me was, this is like trying to teach a class one driver, a, a, a basic driver to be an advanced driver. And there are stages you go through in your, in your driving career in policing. So I could actually understand the analogy then. It's like I was, I was a, literally a, billy, a, a basic surveillance person trying to work in an, for an advanced um, unit. So one of the t- one of the, the places that they did surveillance off and on was the TSG. Um, I had a public order background, I had a uniform policing background. I was reasonably proactive in work, so I applied for the TSG and went and worked with them. And I had loads of mates on there anyway, so it was it was a natural fit for me to go on there. Um, and I enjoyed it. I, my time there was brilliant. Brilliant group, brilliant team, um, on one unit on five area. Um, PCs were great. We had we had you know we had some good times and. and some tough times, some difficult challenges, public order wise, policing wise, but I enjoyed it. I, I only came off because I just got I felt I was getting a bit stout. I was at about sixteen years service and decided I need to do something with my career rather than just keep driving carriers and police cars around.
0: So tell us about the demographic of a TSG in the early nineties. Obviously the territorial support group as it's fundamentally known, TSG yep. for short, is stereotypically as you quite as you described a large transit carrier van with Mm -hmm. you know half a dozen 10 coppers inside it who are deployed who either saturate a particular area where there may be an increase in crime they may be called as a sudden need to public disorder at a licensed premises or maybe part of a bigger operation where you do need lots lots of bums on seats to be able to for instance carry out a search or to be able to storm a home and be able to detain offenders um what you know The training that you must have gone through to get into that position, to be able to move through different areas of policing and support different functions of the job, must have been a fascinating insight to lots of different areas.
1: Gives you a broad brush aspect. I mean, people just see the TSG as almost like dealing with like like fights and disorder and things. And you know, we did far more than that. uh, Yeah, a lot more. We we did a search of the Thames Riverbank one day. Someone reported finding some body parts, bones. So we had to come down, it put our overalls and wellings on, and, and the old big long stays, and search the riverbank um, to see if there was anything else. So we, we did like we did searches, house to house inquiries for for big big investigations, um, big crime scene cordons. So anything, anything you need like a thirty a, a odd cops in one go in one area, um, that's what the TSG were used for. But yeah, different skills, slightly different skill sets, but still basic. For me, basic policing, you know, turn up and, and do a job because you're tasked to do something, go and deal with crimes in a specific area. Um, I enjoyed it. It's a good time good and good challenges. We
0: talk a lot today, and again, I'm going to digress slightly before we jump back into your return to Wimbledon shortly, but we talk a lot today about our ability f- for for police officers and sergeants and skippers and inspectors to be able to police ourselves, to be able to pull people into line if they say yeah. the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. Was the culture at the time then the ability to, if someone kind of pushed the boundaries in terms of banter, they called banter or, you know. Very they, they, much so. Were you able to pull people and say, yeah. listen, mate, pull your head in, it's just inappropriate, yeah. you know, like where, because we seem to have lost that ability a little bit. Where we, we So what was that environment like for you?
1: Well, you know, I was having this conversation, I've had this conversation a lot with, with colleagues from my generation of policing uh, and even, uh, I said this on an interview the other day, bear in mind that, that you know, I, I I've been married more than one. Like, my first wife was in the job, and she was actually in the TSG before me. She joined the TSG before I did. I actually went on to her old unit after she'd left. Um, but we we had like wives, daughters, um, even some people, I've, I've talked one lad whose mum, he, jo- he joined his mum's team, his mum was in the job. Um, so we, we got like female relations that are in policing, and I spoke to someone the other day who was married to a police officer at the time, and he said he, he said to him, I was chatting to his wife. So I was chatting to her the other day and said, did you ever feel like you were threatened or or someone's going to be abusive to you at work or or some sexist or whatever? And she she actually said to him, she she looked at him and went, No, because I always thought that people like Graham or you or or you know the, the older, more experienced officers would actually almost police that for me, would would deal with that, would address that if it happened. Even before it got to sergeant inspector level, where someone was going to turn up and uh, be rude or offensive to someone on the team. The experienced officers on the team would actually deal with that first of all. They'd address that very early, identify early, recognise it, and say, "That's not the way you speak to people or treat people on our team," and it would be dealt with, dare I say, in house. And if it if it needed reported, or reporting, it was it was it was reported, um, and to the people that needed then then to the supervisors to deal with it. Even as a supervisor, you know, I, I, we dealt as sergeants. We dealt with stuff on the team that never got near the inspector. But I also knew, because I had some experienced PCs on the team I was a, a sergeant on, I knew that some of my experienced PCs were dealing with stuff that never even come to me.
0: The, the, the key thing for me is, and what I reflect on in terms of, we focus a lot on the Met, because a lot of people I speak to from the Met, and it's all about having what we call courageous conversations. It was a term that yeah. which was given to me the other day, and I, it's, a, it's a great one to use, is I almost feel that pulling Hendon away for, as a training platform for people to go to, it doesn't, there's no benchmark or base or foundation for discipline. There's the TSG not. is an incredibly disciplined environment. You mm. know, you are following the orders of yeah. your skipper. He says, "Get in a line with your shields down there. Advance, come back." You know, it's you do. You, it's, it's, it's almost like I jump. You say you can ask when you can come down. And I wonder whether we've lost. A little bit of that disciplined foundation to understand what is acceptable, what's not acceptable. And and, and more importantly, identifying people that may not fit into the organisation yeah. during that 27, 28 weeks of training.
1: I think the problem, the problem that the and we deal with the Met specifically, but the, the the difference between the Met and other. And I, I speak to loads of cops across the country and I've been lucky enough to work across the country Um I think the difficulty, the challenge with the Met is it's so big and, it's, it's, and it doesn't need breaking up before we go down that road either. It, it, it needs to stay as it is. It just needs people actually to do their, do their job, identify things and, and report them. And then there needs to be a process to deal with people, which there is now. And why there's going to be a lot more of these cases come up where officers are, have committed offences never they've, they've been investigated, identified by by police officers and, and dealt with. Um, the difficulty with the Met is because it's so big, they've had a history of, of not dealing with poor performance and poor behaviour to a certain extent, and that you can you can move rather than be dealt with. So they can move or you can hide because it's such it's such a big organisation. So pe- someone actually can not be performing as well as they should be, but instead of actually dealing with it, you move them into an office or you move them boroughs or you move them to a different unit or they apply for something, and, and you almost let it become someone else's problem. Whereas in some the of the problem. smaller forces, you're going to see them mm. again. In the, mm. in the Met, you could move from one part of London to the other and never see that that individual again. So you're thinking, well, actually, if, if he or she applies for something and moves... That's fine. They, they can go and they can go and be a, be a bit uh, be a bit less than performing well somewhere else. Whereas in the smaller forces, you're going to hit that you're going to meet that person again. You end up working with them yeah. somewhere. So they tend yeah. to address that I think better in some of the smaller forces than some of the bigger forces. That's an interesting point.
0: Right, let's move back to Wimbledon, ninety six <laughs> to ninety seven. Eight. Eight, eight, sorry. Now I'm fascinated by, so you're back to Wimbledon, short yep. of area car drivers, yep. get Graham back in the hot seat, yep. more intensive driving, more fun, more adrenaline, all that great stuff. But I'm very, very interested to understand your role as the event organiser for the Wimbledon... Tennis arena, because that's a hugely iconic sporting event yeah. through the year in, in, in the UK, with, which attracts thousands and thousands of people, not to mention your Sue Barkers and your Cliff Richards and all the rest of it, but it's a fascinating <laughs> focal point for the UK. So tell us about the responsibility of being the event organiser for Wimbledon.
1: Well, I went back to Wimbledon, as I said, because they were short of driving. I was getting a bit stale and bored on the TSG. And literally, I think I went over a weekend. I, I, I let them let it be known, actually, if I wanted to move and go back somewhere. Um, Wimbledon needed drivers. So they actually put almost like a bidding for me at the postings panel. So I got a phone call saying, if you want to come <laughs> back, you can come back from Monday. So you know, my old unit thought I'd done something wrong. And, you know, on the on the Thursday, I'm there. And on the Monday, I've am I'm, I'm rocked up at Wimbledon to drive an area car again. So I did that for about eight months. Then I moved into like a sector role, a neighbour policing role, and then um, there was a role come up in the events office at Wimbledon. In those days, police stations had their own like operations room, operations and events room. And it was a PC, a sergeant, and normally an inspector in charge of that. Uh, and at Wimbledon, um, they also they dealt with like events at the, at the football ground when it was there. They dealt with um, the stadium when the dog racing and, and, and stock car racing was there. But they also had, the as, as you said, the All England All Tennis Club up on Church Road in Wimbledon, Southwest 19. So... I'd grown up in the area, I'd schooled in the area, been to school in the area, I had a chance to be a ball boy when I was at school and turned it down, um, stupidly. Um, really? Yeah, I wow. didn't do it. Yeah, my, my school used to play, supply the ball boys and ball girls and I got asked to do it and do you know what, I, did? I didn't do it because the training was on a Tuesday and Thursday night and Tuesday I'd go and watch Wimbledon play football and on Thursday I'd go to the speedway. So it was going to impact on my social life, so I didn't do it. I, I, I regret it to this day. And bizarrely, shows how life goes full circle. I ended up working with a PC at Wimbledon whose dad used to train the ball boys. Oh my goodness, so, so it's a small world. Top lad called Wally. Wally used to train the ball boys at Wimbledon. Um, and I'd have ended up uh, coming under his wing and being trained. But going back to the, the question, the PC at Wimbledon used to, and it, it's changed now, it's now done centrally at the Public Order Branch, my old branch now now do with the policing arrangements. But the PC used to literally arrange, and it was done locally. So we'd get officers in from from like surrounding stations to assist, and we'd manage the traffic points, the inside security. There was a tout squad. There was an indecency squad when I was when I was when I was there doing it because it, it was a, a bit of a magnet, an attraction for because it's it's summer, the height of summer. A lot of ladies go to the tennis, uh, and it would attract some men who would find um, some gratification from being around lots of ladies in dresses and short skirts, etc. And in queues and in big in big crowds, so we had an indecency squad that ran for a couple of years, um, just to try and identify and recognise and deal with any allegations that, that this was going on. So it was a fascinating tournament to to be involved in. Meetings with the club, um, sorting out the policing arrangements. You you basically turned that the there was a a, like a police marquee where we 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 briefed, parade and eat at. Um, so yeah, it was fascinating and just the security aspects as well. Um, you know, as it, as it became um, it's an iconic tournament anyway, but. The changes in the in the club, and I've been up there fairly recently um, since I left policing, doing another doing a, a driving job up there. So I did a driving job for um, like the courtesy cars. So just to see the changes in, in that in that area, you know, centre court, number one court, etc., um, and how it's changed policing. I, I remember we put we put the CCTV in for the first time. I took like the championship director over to our, the old Arsenal stadium as it was Highbury because the club then wanted to put a security camera system in because it didn't have one. So, when I was there, we actually went. I went with him. I had a contact at Arsenal, a chief superintendent there I knew from policing. So, he actually let us go down there and see the system they had in place. So, the All England Club put a similar system in place so we could actually monitor all the gates and the the passageways, the entranceways with a set of cameras. That was fascinating. It's
0: it's historically historically never been an event which has had too many public order issues. Would I be right in saying it's always generally a a well attended event by relatively pleasant individuals who just
1: want to enjoy strawberry champagne sit on the hill and watch some yep. tennis or yep. am I wrong well yeah, no yeah, fundamentally right yeah but I mean Fathers for Justice did do a protest there one year because I got called to that so in my in my role at, at the public order branch dealing with protest groups there was a protest group called Fathers for Justice and one year um, and I'd offered to send some like intelligence officers because we dealt with this group to the tennis and I think they, they think that, I think that the, the uh, There's was a friend of mine who was doing my old job at, at Wimbledon at the time. He, I think he, he was convinced we just wanted a bit of a jolly for two weeks, to go to the tennis for two weeks. So I rang up and said, look, do you want me to send some people just to keep an eye on any pro? No, 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 we're fine, we're fine. And then one morning, my phone goes in the my office at the yard. Uh, Graham, um, we think we might have a bit of a problem. We think we, we think Father's Justice might be targeting us today. So we um, we deployed a couple of officers down here. But by the time we got there, they'd opened the gates and let everybody in. So in a break of play, two people jumped out from the crowd and started knocking the ball across the net on centre court. So they were arrested and carted off to Wimbledon. So there has been, has been uh, one or two incidents. But you know they're a lot better at these sort of things now. But it's a great tournament. Great tournament, great place to be. Local for me, local, local boy. Um, I love being up there and love working it. Your public order
0: work, though, has also taken you to the football at Fulham and Chelsea. Now, yeah. completely or can be completely at the different opposite end of the spectrum, especially when you get local derbies, you get the challenges of the fans and trying to keep everybody separate. There's generally quite a significant public order policing presence. Mm. Tell us about managing the dynamics of football fans.
1: Well, that again was life goes full circle. But My, my, my mum and my dad um, were from Fulham. All my family lived in Fulham. So between my mum and my dad's side, um, Chelsea fans on one side, my dad's side are mainly Fulham fans. Um, I was born in Parsons Green, so I've been a Chelsea fan since I was about four years old, because we lived in Fulham for the first four years. Uh, so I'm so sorry to hear win. that. Eh? <laughs> I
0: said, I'm so sorry to hear that. <laughs> Chelsea supporter. <laughs> yeah, I declare that now.
1: So um, to go to Fulham as a sergeant was was great for me, because it literally was, that was like a, almost like a, a, I couldn't have asked for a better posting, really. Um, and having the football on the doorstep as well, doing Fulham, Chelsea, and to some some weekends QPR as well, because that the old the old borough of Hammersmith and Fulham had three um, what were at one point first division slash Premier Division Premier League football sides. Um, so we had a really busy time football wise in policing it. And I used to with another sergeant, we'd run almost like the I used to call them hooligans, but now wrist fans. We our, our role basically was to was to stop any disorder between um, rival fans. So the way we the way used to go about that was almost like knowing, identifying, recognising our risk supporters um, and then just staying with them during the game, making sure actually if they're in the pub, we find out which pub they're in, we, we go with them to the ground, we leave the ground with them. So it was a lot of um, observing, monitoring and just watching what goes on and just uh, getting to know people really um, and doing home and away games. So even to this day, that the most police forces will send a couple of local officers on away fixtures with their with their clubs so both the manchester clubs do it liverpool everton most clubs in the in the top tier will send a couple of local officers on away fixtures with their with their clubs and it's about knowing people it's very it, it's it's almost a deterrent factor if you turn up somewhere and you're you you fancy or you what you're inclined to commit some sort of criminal offenses to have like your local pc go hello graham how's it going how are you doing today and it's like oh okay i can't do it you know now i'm here you've recognized me you know it's a bit of a deterrent factor, and it also gives them a bit of a liaison as well. When you go away to somebody's grounds, it's um, can be a good, daunting for some some supporters. So actually, to see a local officer walking around, coming into pubs, making sure you're okay, walking to the ground with you, gives them a bit of um, security as well.
0: So your move back into public order became almost a permanent. Fi- what well, did become a permanent fixture mm-hmm. in terms of then your role as a sergeant? You acted up for an inspector for a period of many months before you left the job. But talk about we we spoke to Bob about his experiences as the gold commander overseeing G20. Obviously there was a significant event in terms of the death of Ian Tomlinson. This is the crowd at the G20 protests on April 1st around 7.20pm. They are on Cornhill near the Bank of England. This footage will form the basis of a police investigation into the death of this man. Ian Tomlinson was walking through this area attempting to get home from work. Minutes after this was shot Tomlinson collapsed and died further along the road. Give us the insights for somebody, you know, Bob is sitting up there in HQ, he's watching down all the cameras, the live feeds, he's understanding the movements of the crowds, he's getting the information from you as to kind of what's going on, is that, was that your role or you on the ground, yeah. give, give us your yeah. rundown of G20 for you as a skipper at TSG.
1: Well, in fact, I was off the TSG by then. I was, I was actually, I moved to public order branch in 2002. So my role um, at was what was then called CO11, Commissioner's Office 11. So my role in the public order branch was, was managing um, the intelligence and evidence gathering teams. So for G20, which was 1st of April 2009, we had information intelligence. It was open source. It was all on the internet. The groups were going to converge on the Bank of England and just um, engage in disorder and disruption. So we had different different, like, groups coming from different areas. I think it was the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, they called them. So it was a significant policing operation. We had various briefings for City of London and the businesses, and I went to those, and as the, almost like the intelligence manager slash coordinator, was answering some of the questions about the type of policing operation, like the level of disruption, uh, level of disorder they were likely to see, the types of individuals and groups that were that were um, planning on attending this, what they'd done previously. And it's, it's similar to the football role, where it's, it's about recognising and knowing who you see in front of you and their their likelihood of then committing criminal offences. So you get to know the the people that are going to do some direct action, those that are just going to come along and stand and shout. Um, and for Bob's Roller's Gold was basically setting a strategy and overseeing the whole event. Um, but it's a silver commander, the tactical commander that, that the intel manager coordinator works directly to because you're giving them, or well, the idea is you give them fast-time intelligence, fast-time information that they then deploy resources to. So our role was identifying where these these pockets of groups, individuals and disorder was, and then they deploy the the resources. So you're making best use of your resources based on fast-time intelligence.
0: How did you find the G20 in terms of the policing response and the incident involving Tomlinson? How did that all kind of pan out for you in your position?
1: I mean, it's it's now got almost like its own history, its own narrative. The actual day itself, um, policing-wise, up until then, up until um, Mr Tomlinson's death, was a real success. There was there was significant disorder planned. Um, they they basically um, tried to trash the Royal Bank of Scotland. I took the, I, I took the first team into the RBS when they were smashing the windows and trying to set fire to it. Um, we cleared that out. So up until and, and do you know when we finished the day, we ha- we weren't aware someone had actually died. I remember getting a, we remember I did the debrief with the teams and we come back. Um, and it was a rumour that that someone had died during the day. And I remember I rang up like that at the press office and said, there's a rumour going around, and I'm getting some of the the, the teams are coming back to me saying, oh, we've heard that someone's dead. Is that true? So I actually rang like the press office and said, we're hearing that someone's died. Is that, no, no, we haven't got reports on that at all. So I actually made them all do use of false notes. And I said, look, just in case, guys and girls, we're all going to write our use of false notes now before we go. I wasn't very popular because we'd done about 60 hours on our feet. Um, But we all did like use of false notes in our pocketbooks there, time stamped them, went off duty and it was only like a day or two later that a video emerged showing Mr Tomlinson being pushed to the ground by a police office, by a uniformed police officer and that's when it became really relevant so you know the whole the whole aspect of the event then changed um, because of because of his death and there was then a review into how we police protests and the adapting to protest report came out about 2009 and changed almost the the way we police protests um, and not to the better for my, you know, my reading of it, my understanding, it come away from um, using intelligence, fast time intelligence and more about interaction and liaising with people. And there are some people who attend protests that, that do not want to engage in liaise with police officers whatsoever.
0: No. How do we, have we managed groups such as Extinction Rebellion and Stop Oil protests, are we, are we managing these people appropriately in terms of how we're responding to their interruption of day-to-day lives of Londoners?
1: Uh, no, but I think the difficulty there is um, they are well-backed, they are well-versed in protest tactics, They, they basically their history comes back to, dare I say it, Greenpeace, um, and, and they, they've learned through the years. About what they can and can't do, the direct action protesters. And a lot of these, these, these causes um, are hijacked slightly by people that want it for their own ends, want it for their own, own means, and, and almost like becomes a, a vehicle for their own cause. So I think there's there's sections within Extinction Rebellion, just stop all that, that, that just want to cause disruption. Um, and they know what the legislation is challenging because it's mainly down to highway obstruction. It's very. Uh, it's. It's not actually. It's non-violent direct action, which means it's not confrontational. They're just disruptive by just sitting there, or, or so they know they're not. They can't be dealt with as maybe as robustly or strongly as as UK police tend to deal with other protests, or even the European police officers deal with them. So I think the police, police in the UK have got uh, have got a challenging point in dealing with. Um, obstruction of the highway that we saw, so that's why we're, we're looking at some... I don't think they need any more legislation. When you The difficulty they had was when you're detaining somebody and arresting for highway obstruction, because it's a minor offence, they come in, they get charged, they get released. They go back out and do it again. So because it was such a minor offence, they then started looking at conspiracy offences, which are more serious, which means you can then maybe um, remand them in custody and keep them, you know, refuse bail. So it depends on... And then you get them to call, and the justice system gives them a £50, £200 fine or whatever, and that's that's generally paid by whatever fund they've got going between their protest groups. So no deterrent factor either. So you can carry on committing offences. Yes, you're getting a criminal record for minor offences like highway obstruction, but there's no actual deterrent to doing what you're doing. That's why I think we've seen a step change recently because they've started arresting and charging these people with conspiracy, which is a more serious offence. They're now remanded in custody. So actually that puts some people off from doing doing the actions in the first place. And when they actually carry out their actions, they're not going to be as disruptive as they've been before. So I think it, will, it remains to be seen what happens to these individuals once they get to court, and if they get sentenced, convicted, and then sentenced, whether that has an impact on the tactics of groups like Just Stop Oil and Extinction Rebellion. They've got a they've got a valid message, but I've, I've done this before in interviews. I think the way they're they're putting across their message is alienating the very people they need. This is a democracy. We, we run by. You know, run by the, the majority, and I think they've actually completely alienated the majority of people in their cause and their message by by the actions they've taken. What
0: do you think are the greatest challenges for policing in the next five to ten years? What well, if 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 you know Samart Rowley's got huge challenges on his plate, and I, mm. I must admit, I think he's doing an incredible job in laying mm. out the benchmarks as to what he wants to achieve in the tenure of his commissionership, which is obviously restoring faith in in policing in London, which I think um, he's certainly. Demonstrating quite overtly that he's doing, and it. it's it's been quite an impressive start, I must say. But what do you think are the challenges for policing the next five years?
1: Retention of staff. Simple. It's it for me. If you if you pick the one thing they need to get right, it's keeping your experienced officers. Um, and I think, as I said, if you keep the experienced officers, they'll start um, uh, they'll start then almost like managing. And the issue with policing over the last few years is we've been we've been we've been losing shedding. So much experience. Even when you get to 30, as I did, get to 30 years, I put my resignation papers in. um And when I went to, I went, I had a leaving do at the yard in the in the February. I had so many days to take off. I had about three months at home on leave because I would like uh, annual leave, and I worked so many weekends in 2009. I had all these days off to take. I went back for my leaving do in February, and the the then assistant commissioner Chris Allison, he couldn't believe I was resigning. He, he said he, yeah, I got told, asked today, are you going to the, re- the retirement do tonight? He said, who's retirement do is it? Oh, Graham Wetton. He was like. Well, Graham's retired. It's like, yeah, he's, he's put his papers in. There was no one that actually sat me down and said, and I actually, in hindsight, I should have stayed longer. And I would have stayed. But I'd almost got to, I had a bit of a, per, a personal bereavement. Mum, mum had died the year before. Um, I was on my own at the time. And I think, they say, don't make, don't make big decisions when you're grieving. I think I was, if I look back now, I was still grieving for my mum then. I, I, my parents separated when I was younger. So I grew up with my mum, um, only child. Um, she was the biggest influence on my life and I think I, when I'd lost her in 2008 I then basically got through 2009 literally got through because it was so busy work wise with G8 with uh, climate camp with carnival etc 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 I got to almost like September October um, I thought I just need I can't I, I just need almost like to press pause on my life at the time and reassess um and I, I literally then just decided, and I, I kept I also kept failing the, the actual Part 3 inspectors in the Met. They kept changing the process. So I'd, I'd done the job for six months. Um, I wasn't getting promoted. So I thought, something just needs to change. So I actually almost almost like a toy's out of prayer moment put my papers in. And I think it comes down to retention. Policing across the country needs to look at keeping good people in. There's various, there's various um, programmes now coming in where you can stay after 30 years. But there was they, they were dreadful at doing exit interviews. They were dreadful at asking people, if you're in the private sector and you go to leave a job or something, you normally get into it, is there anything we can say or do that's going to make you stay? Or if you're coming up to like retiring, is there anything, you know, can you, my mum had it. She went down to three days a week in her role because her boss didn't want her to, she said, I can't keep doing five days a week. He went, we go down to three then. Do you want to work from home? And this is pre-COVID. Do you want to work from home for a day or two a week? So... You know, the private sector do this really well. I speak to loads of people that run companies. And they're like, we'd never let you leave with 30 years experience, but that's and if we can keep you for, for, for through it. And I'd have done, you know, like most cops of my generation, if, so, if the job had said to me, do you want to come in for three days a week? You know, pro rata, pay-wise, but do you want to come back, you know, do three, four days a week? I think I'd have bitten their hands off in a similar role. Or something. Or even go, even gone back to responsibility scene as it is. You know, do you want to go back? Do you want to go out on borrow somewhere and start supervising it? Yeah, great. Give me something different. Give me a different challenge to do. But it, it's And I think policing needs to look at retention. It also needs to look at recruitment. People keep mentioning vetting. Yes, vetting does need to improve. It's not great. It, it needs improving. It needs changing. It's going back, home visits, etc. face-to-face interviews. But by the same token, vetting's only as good as the day it's done. And it's only as good as the person doing the vetting. And if they're only basing their vetting on the information the individual's giving them, then you're only going to get one view of it because if i tell you all about me like from this interview this is this isn't about me and my life at all this 90 minutes this hour or so um so it's only from what i'm telling you and what people are listening to you're going to base your opinion of me on you know if you want to do vet if you want to vet someone properly you need to a far more um intrusive look at their their background their lifestyle etc and not just based on what they're giving you so policing faces real challenges not just in london But again, my old the Met has got big changes. I think Mark Rowley, Lynn Owens are doing a fantastic job so far. They're getting out and about. They're holding regular meetings with people. They're answering questions. I think they get the fact that policing should react to response-type calls, response-type policing needs, needs resources. People really just want an officer to turn up when they dial 999. It's great having this ideology of a uh, local Bobby walking past your house and you're waving at him on a Sunday morning, but you're not going to get him at 2 o'clock in the morning when someone's trying to nick your car or, or, or breaking your back door. You know, he's going to be at home. Having I mean, walked up and down the, the road for, like, from 9 till 5 and you're waving at all the neighbours and saying hello to the small kids, that's great, that's uh, a utopia. But who's going to come out when you're dull 999 because something's happened at 1 o'clock in the morning? I'm so
0: rapping. true. No, no, it's fantastic insights and I think, you know... As I've said in a recent tweet I put out yesterday, I'm getting together with a panel of us to talking about, you know, having these conversations and talking about what worked because that once upon a time the formula worked. You know, yeah. it was, you know, it's, and you just wonder we need to reflect on what worked previously. Keep it simple. You know, it's all about the community. It's about responding when they dial nine nine nine. We turn up. You know,
1: that's the key thing.
0: That's all people it, really want.
1: It's about key uh, supervision as well. Getting away from this, and I've I've spoken to super, I speak to supervisors uh, on a weekly basis. If you start telling someone, like, like, you were late today, don't be late again, it's like, well, don't talk to me like that, you're bullying me. Well, that's not bullying, that's actually management. So I think supervisors need to be allowed to to, to supervise without being an accused of bullying, because I know some supervisors are now scared almost to to, to raise performance issues with people, because they're then accused of being a bully. And then it ends up get So I think we need to get back get away from, I think academia's got to, far too involved in policing, politicians have got far too involved in policing. Um, experienced cops need how to do this. I'm, I'm concerned we've made, we've lost our way over like ten, twelve years, and whether we'll ever be able to retrieve that is a big question. Because I think you've lost so much knowledge and experience in in ten, twelve years since. Dare I say it, you go back to Cameron and May's day when they were decimating UK policing. If, the, if crime's gone down, we need less officers. That's complete nonsense. You, know, you need more cop. You need more officers to keep crime at a low level. And that, you know you found that over the last twelve years. So. Leave the policing to the to the cops. They know what they're doing. My old boss, Hugh Ward, was against all that. He he spoke he spoke quite vocally about you know leaving the police to do the policing. And as a result, I think he didn't get the commissioner's job. Um, and he would have been a great commissioner. Um, but I think politicians need to leave policing alone to a certain degree. Um, yes, give them guidelines. Um, yes, have a you know keep an overview, but don't start setting policies. This is what you need to do. This is what you must do. Some some policing crime commissioners are really good at their job. Um, But I think literally having political parties getting involved in managing policing has has been to the detriment of the service.
0: Well, look at that. One hour and 10 minutes has flown by and I've got to say what a great conversation we've had and what a great reflection on 30 years in policing. I've loved every moment of your journey and um, you know the highs, the lows, the exposures to some stories that you can remember to this day with great detail, even being able to drive us to some of those scenes is quite incredible. I think it just goes to show people that listen to this podcast and there's about ten thousand of them now that you know ordinary people doing extraordinary work and you know the the exposure to sometimes quite traumatic experiences stay with us forever you know good bad or indifferent but we're able to some of us compartmentalize it and process it others have some struggles and, and and need to seek help to kind of understand what they've experienced but i think what an incredible career you've had so on behalf of my team and here at the Podcast Protect and Serve. We thank you ever so much for your public service, your insights and your continued work to champion policing. It never I think ever leaves us. I think we've all still got a, a great affection for it and want to see it in a great place. So thank you ever so much for coming on the show.
1: You're welcome. Thanks for asking me. I've enjoyed it.
0: Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production, hosted by Oliver Lawrence. Research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Win Stanley. Produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence.